Well, good evening. You okay? I thought, um, I thought this seemed, yeah, you know. I was like, well, well we've got the, some cocktails. Just for the sake of the podcast, that was Margaret Cribb, the elder, asking for cocktails. <laughs> you can willingly have the job. <laughs> to this month's Q&A. Um, we are hanging out tonight in um, Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah. Um, so I'll pray and then we'll jump right in, shall we? Yeah? Great. Father God, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for the hope and the peace and the joy and the life that it brings. And thank you, Father, even for the bits that we wrestle with because when we wrestle with it, somehow we wrestle with you and we get a little bit more intimate and get to know more of your heart. And we pray, Lord, that tonight, as we wrestle with some of these questions about your word, that that would be the end result, that we would be closer to you, and we would be transformed and changed by you, and that we would know more of your heart. So come and inhabit this space, we pray. Amen. Great, guys. Question one, then, is Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. Did Jeremiah ever take up his role as a priest? And I think that's for Den. Welcome to the uh, Café de Paris. The, the, new, the new setup, coffee all around. And uh, we need a little Manuel, don't we, to come round and, you know, sort of serve everybody. And, you know, okay. All right. Um, Jeremiah, great book, fantastic book, um, leading into the latter part of the Old Testament, from Jeremiah on, we go into like Ezekiel and Daniel, great, great book, great, great book. Um, so uh, our question again, did Jeremiah ever take up his role as a priest? So let's read the verse, which is Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 1, um, which is the verse that concerns this. Okay, we all up and running? Okay. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Ananoth, in the territory of Benjamin. Uh, I guess it, if you read this, you could take it two ways. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anoth. Was, does this mean Jeremiah, or does it mean his father, Hilkiah? Right? Uh, Jeremiah, when he took up his role as uh, a prophet, was probably only about 18 to 20 years of age, so he's not going to be a priest at this point because... You don't become a priest until you're 30 years of age, okay? So that rules out if this verse means Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's uh, father, Hilkiah, was one of the priests of Ananoth. Ananoth is a small town, a small village, two to three miles from Jerusalem. And it's a Levite town given to Levites by Joshua all those years ago. And it's uh, also a city of refuge. And this is where Jeremiah grew up. This is where he was born. And he will be of the tribe of Levi. Because uh, Hilkiah was uh, a priest in a direct line from Aaron. So this makes Jeremiah in the line of the priesthood right down from Aaron. Now, we're going to have a look at this. We're going to prove this by going to uh, Genesis chapter 46. 
and verse 11. And what we've got in uh, the chapter 4 of Numbers is, uh, you'll see the heading in my Bible, it's got the Colothites. Sorry, Numbers. Ah! Um, excuse me. Uh, Genesis. Genesis 46, 11. I think, sorry. It's the beer I've had this afternoon. Well, it's in the family, eh? Hey? Mad dog cocktails. You've been on the beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was my granddaughter's 21st birthday. And, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, <laughs> and we gathered for a meal in Bath. And um, my mind might be a little bit off pat. <laughs> Genesis chapter 46 and uh, verse 11. So what we've got is the, the sons um, of Jacob and uh, the son of Leah is Levi. So in verse 11, the sons of Levi is Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, so this is where the whole of the Levite clan, the whole of the Levite tribe starts off as regards to uh, they were going to uh, forming the priesthood and the duties um, of the temple. Um, and let's go now to Numbers chapter 4. We've arrived. Uh, in my Bible, I've got the Kohathites, okay? So this, the Kohathites um, refer back to what, what we've just read in Genesis. So you've got the three uh, sons of Jacob. I'm just going to go through the chapter a bit, all right? Um, so, chapter 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take a census of the Kohathite branch of the Levites by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to serve in the work at the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting. The care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant. And then the chapter goes on to tell you what the Kohathites are doing. And they're dealing with all the holy things. They're dealing with the censers. They're dealing with the holy things of the tabernacle. They're not touching the outer parts of the tabernacle, the curtains, the outer uh, walls. They're not doing that. They're solely to do with the uh, burning of incense in the tabernacle, the showbread the lighting of the menorah, this is their duties. And this is the line that uh, the Kohathites had, the Levites had coming right away through to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is of this line through his father and through the Levites. So Jeremiah, potentially, when he reached the age of 30, then he could become a priest, but he hasn't reached that age yet. Okay? So just go over the... I'll say this, just go over the page in my Bible. I always say this. Go to... Uh, verse 21 of that same chapter, chapter 4, and it talks about the Gershonites. And I'll just read a couple of verses from that. The Lord said to Moses, Take a census also of the Gershonites by their families and clans. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work of the tent of meeting. This is a service of the Gershonites, clans, in their carrying and other work. They are to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, that is, the tent of meeting, 
its covering, its outer covering, durable leather, the curtains for the entrance of the tent of meeting. So you get the idea that the other son of Jacob has got to perform uh, these duties of carrying the things of the tabernacle when the tabernacle moves. So every time the tabernacle moves, that's their business. And then if you go on to uh, verse 29, uh, the Meronites, this is the other son of Levi, uh, coming right through the clan, of course. I mean, we're talking Jacob before um, the Israelites went into 400 years of exile. All right, so we've come up. We're talking now about Sinai. We're in Sinai with Moses. So the Meronites, count the Meronites by their clans and families. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to serve in the work at the tent of meeting as part of all their service at the tent. They are to carry the frames of the tabernacle its crossbars, posts, and bases, as well as the posts uh, of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, ropes, all their equipment, and everything uh, related to their use, assigned to each man the specific things he is to carry. So here's these three guys, and the Gershonites and the Marionites are doing the carrying, they're doing the manual work, they're doing the donkey work, but the Kohathites, which Levi, the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites come from, which is a line of Jeremiah. Okay, so Jeremiah's coming through the Kohathites. He, he can become a priest when he's 30 years of age. All right, but like I said before, he hasn't reached that age when he becomes a prophet. Because we've learned from Jeremiah chapter 1 that he's only about 18 to 20 years of age when he is called to be a prophet. Now, is Jeremiah ever going to be a priest? Is he ever going to come in and use his priestly duties even when he is 30, which is the age when you can become a priest. Is he going to do that? From what we've seen in Jeremiah, what we've read right the way through Jeremiah, the answer is no, because Jeremiah is coming to this people that are way away from the Lord. Uh, they are worshipping so many pagan gods that he is not going to go to the temple and carry out his priestly duties because he has come to prophesy to the people who are doing these uh, pagan things. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, and I'll go over this again for the um, sake of the podcast. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 8, he is in Babylon, and in the spirit, he is taken to Jerusalem, and he sees 70 elders in a room out the way, worshipping all the pagan gods, all the pagan gods are written up on a wall, uh, animals, uh, insects, all these things that they worship is written on the wall. And these 70 elders are uh, worshipping all of these gods. And then Ezekiel is taken to the north gate of the temple where he sees the women of Jerusalem mourning over Tammuz, who is a pagan god, a pagan god of fertility. And this god supposed to die every year and the women mourn over him to bring him back to life so that he can then give fertility to the land again and then jeremiah uh, sorry ezekiel is taken to the inner courts of the temple where he sees men with their backs to the temple bowing down worshiping the sun now there's no way that jeremiah is going to take up his priestly duties to go into the temple and to perform the acts of the priest when all this was going on. So Jeremiah never, ever 
took up his priestly duties. He could have done what he was certain. He's in that line of Levi, but he never did. I'm just going to check the question out. Yeah, it says, did he ever take up his role as a priest? Well, no, because of the reasons why I've, I've just said. How old would he have been at the exile? Uh, he would be about uh, 40 years and 20 years. We'll say, we'll say he was 20 years when he became a, um, a prophet, and then he prophesied for 40 years, so he would have been about 60 years at the exile. Uh, and then, um, as we know, if you go to the end, um, he is left alone by... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar knows that he has prophesied against Judah, saying, you have to just surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, because God has brought Nebuchadnezzar up to uh, destroy Jerusalem, if Jerusalem don't surrender. If Jerusalem had surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, some people would have got taken into captivity, but Jerusalem would have stood as just another city in the Babylonian Empire. So, from that point on, Jeremiah uh, is told that he can go anywhere he wants, but he stays in Judah under the governor of Judah, but then that governor is killed, and the people who kill that governor takes Jeremiah off to Egypt. And that's the last we hear of Jeremiah. We don't know how long he lived or, or, or really what happened. There's always speculation about these things, about what happened to him. You get guys writing books, this and that, but... We don't know, and that's, that's the end of it. So he's around about 60 in, in the exile. That's cool. So he would have been old enough to have become a, a priest, but he probably never did. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. This and That by Dennis Kerslake, coming to a bookshop near you soon. Uh, <laughs> okay. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 10, and chapter 20, verse 7. The Lord doesn't deceive his people. What's going on and why would Jeremiah think this? Chris, thanks. So uh, we'll just read the couple of verses that the question is about. So uh, chapter 4, verse 10. This is Jeremiah speaking back to the Lord after um, the Lord speaks to him about Israel, Israel about Judah obviously particularly, and about, um, you know, about its uh, impending destruction. His response in verse 10 is, O sovereign lords, the people have been deceived by what you said. For you promised peace for Jerusalem, but the sword is held at their throat. And then um, chapter chapter 20. Um, just remind me of the verse again. Sorry, what was the question? Verse 7 says this. O oh Lord, you misled me, and I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you overpowered me. Now I'm mocked every day. Everyone laughs at me. So the, que the question is, what we're led to believe is that the Lord never deceives, always true, always honest, always faithful with his words. But here we have a couple of instances where Jeremiah um, is saying back to the Lord, you deceived us, you deceived me, you led, led me down the garden path, etc. So what's going on? Um, I, I have to say, I keep, keep it quite short and keep, keep it quite simple because I, I think it's just a case of 
mistaken identity really on Jeremiah's part. And, and the reason I say that is because, <clears throat> firstly, we know, you know, you could pick a handful of different moments in Scripture where God is laying down his covenant and make, making the sort of the boundaries of that covenant very clear. And I don't know, I'm certainly going to reference Deuteronomy in my next question. It might come up again because it feels like they're both interlinked. But you'll know in Deuteronomy 28, that's where God talks about the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. And I feel like that is the framework by which the people of Israel knew what God would do in certain circumstances and what he'd do in others. So I think generally speaking, Jeremiah is in a position perhaps, well, I'll come on to that in a second, but I think that's pretty clear. But also, when you look at how God actually uh, commissions Jeremiah, going back to Den's answer in chapter 1, he's very clear as well that he's chosen Jeremiah um, to be a part of God's plan to, to build and plant, also to tear down and destroy. So I'm not really sure how it could have been much clearer, really, in terms of this is what to expect if my people abandon me. And the whole of, you know, the whole message of Jeremiah is that, isn't it? Is my people have abandoned me. They've gone after foreign gods. They've forsaken righteousness. And this is the consequence of that. And that, that's what's happening in chapter four. Um, and I, and I, I've, I've sort of just coined a new term, which perhaps Den can put in his book when it when it goes live. But um, well, it might not be a new term, but I'm just going to say it's a new term. I, I what I describe Jeremiah's experiencing is prophetic pressure. Do you know what I mean? So like, and and he does, and it's at, you know even more so in the second in chapter twenty. You know, it's almost like this has this has got to work well, you know, but. All, all I'm hearing from you is destruction. Is and he knows it's the truth. He knows it's the way it's got to be. But I, but but almost wanting to believe that that's not the case. That actually, you know, I'm just gonna. You've deceived us. You've and there there were, and there will have been times, of course, in in scripture in, in the prom, in the promises that were laid down to the people of Israel that peace and prosperity w- was promised. But it, it's a two way covenant. And and it's just interesting actually because I was just flicking through and thinking was there a, was there a time in the sort of narrative in terms of the kings that 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 Jeremiah lived through where this sort of promise was made and I can't I can't find one barring um, where is it in one Kings if you turn me to one Kings twenty two. Um, so the the king. So this is King Josiah, who we know is good. He he, uh, as part of his reign, the priests discover God's law again, which I find quite funny. You know, just oh, there's God's law. Let's start doing it again, sort of thing. But anyway, he he sends he sends the priest out and his his group to um, inquire. Sorry, two kings. My, my apologies, two kings. Sorry. Um, he, sa- he sends a, uh, his, his little 
band out to inquire of this prophet. And, and she says this, um, the Lord, the God of Israel has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, i.e. King Josiah. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifice to pagan gods. And I'm very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place and it will not be quenched. So again, pretty clear that that's not, you know, God was not messing around in terms of this is what to expect if you break the covenant. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on the city. That is a promise, as far as I can tell, to King Josiah. So the, the, there's a pause almost on the disaster. And so I'm just speculating as to whether maybe there was some confusion around that to mean, oh, actually that, that God's just going to relent entirely and we can carry on doing exactly as we please. Maybe that's, maybe that's also an explanation for why Jeremiah thought God was deceiving him and the, and, and the people. But I would also say one other thing. This is just another example. And, and you see it, actually, going back to Jeremiah, where it's not that God's made a decision at some point in the past to bring destruction and then is just blindly moving towards that point in history. There's always a way out. There's always an option for repentance. There's always an option for the people to turn back to him. And that's clear when, you know, he's at the top of, um, the top of chapter 4, which is the, where this question has come from. Oh, Israel, says the Lord, if you wanted to return to me, you could. You could throw away your detestable idols and stray away no more. Then when you swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, you could do so with truth, justice, and righteousness. Then you would be a blessing to the nations of the world. And all the people would come and praise my name. So again, God is making it clear. I'm, I, I can be perfectly trusted. I'm not deceitful in the slightest. This, is, this has always been the case with me. There's always a place for forgiveness and repentance. But if you carry on moving this direction, I've always made it clear that there are consequences for disobedience. This verse was um, chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. So that was the start of... No, so the, the, the bit before was 2 Kings. This was back to Jeremiah chapter 4 where the question came from. Great stuff. Cool. <clears throat> I'm really... No. Oh, I really debated. There's another verse in Scripture where it looks like God is deceiving. And I thought, oh, should we throw that one out there as well and see... If we've got time at the end, maybe we'll go and see what, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, cool, love that, love that. Um, question three then is Jeremiah chapter four, verse 23. The question says, this makes me think of the Garden of Eden before it was formed. Could this be when the Lord takes heaven and earth back to the very start? Like the potter 
to start afresh. So let's read Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. It says, I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I'm going to read 24 as well. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking, and the hills were swaying. 25. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. Verse 26, yeah. I looked, and the faithful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So, obviously, the question mainly was about verse 23. And I think we we, we know the overarching uh, narrative of Scripture, right? So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that story. Then we know so there's what we would call creation, and then there's what we refer to as decreation. So there's this the, the fall. Human sin comes into the world. It affects everything. It's not just us, but the whole of creation is impacted by sin. And so we have this decreation story. And we haven't got time to go into it tonight. But as you track the story through, you see patterns in the Hebrew language of creation and decreation, then recreation and decreation, then recreation and decreation. And so this mini story is going like this all the way through. But then over the whole thing, you get creation, decreation, and then right at the end, recreation. We get the new heavens and the new earth. And in, in Revelation, we get this language of, of, of Eden restored and heaven and earth being one again. And um, only now it's not just a garden, it's a garden city. It's this new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. It's, yeah, anyway, so we get this big overarching narrative. And what the person who put this question in is picking up on is, is that, oh, I'm seeing something here in Jeremiah that looks like, reminds me of Genesis. Is this about this big overarching story where God's recreating heaven and earth and bringing it all together again? Um, so two responses to that. Response one, I know and yes. Is that okay? No and yes. Shall we move on? No, no. Don't. Um, so, so explain. Okay. Um, when you read this, this verse and you picked up the Genesis language, awesome. And, and if, any else, if any others of you picked up that Genesis language, 10 pastor points for each of you. Okay. All right. Um, this is something that scholars refer to as intertextuality intertextuality. Um, and this is when uh, bits of uh, the scriptures get, get referenced or linked or reused in other bits of the scriptures. So in verse 23, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form. form. The actual the actual phrase here, if you want to check your interlinear Bible on Bible Hub, you can do. But the actual phrase, formless and empty, is the Hebrew phrase, tohu vavohu. Okay? Tohu vavohu. Um, it's the phrase formless and empty, and it's the exact same Hebrew phrase that is used in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu vavohu. That's the same phrase. So Jeremiah is intentionally using Genesis language. So if you read this and you thought, oh, Genesis, Eden, creation, 
That's exactly what the author wants you to think, okay? But more than that, we get this thing where the earth was formless and um, empty, and then we get this thing about the heavens, and we get this thing about light and darkness. Now, it doesn't say darkness here, but there was light, and it was gone. If the light is gone, what is it? Darkness. It's light and there's darkness. So we get the earth was formless and empty, and God spoke, and there was light. And we get this kind of Genesis language being used. And as you track through, you kind of follow some of the Genesis story, the creation of the land, um, the creation of uh, the, the, the fruit, the seeds of all their kinds. You get the, the birds in the sky. Um, you get this Genesis language that the author is linking back to intertextuality. They're using phrases from Genesis here um, to make you think about something. Only when we read this, do we see a creation story? No, we see a decreation story. We see a decreation story. So what's going on here is this following pattern of creation, decreation, recreation, decreation. Only this is a point in history when God's own people, who are supposed to be those that bear his image and bring his rule and reign to creation, have strayed so far from him that their actions are literally undoing created order. They're decreating. Um, the joy of this is, is that as you track creation, decreation, recreation, decreation through the story, what you discover is that decreation is often linked up with God's judgment. And in the story of Noah, it's one of the great stories where we see decreation happening. The language used in the story of the flood is a reversal of creation. So you get the undoing of creation as the waters that are separated above and below come together again, which you've got in Genesis where they separated. So here... Decreation is happening, but decreation always leads God to do what? To recreate. His judgment and decreation always leads to bringing new life and new hope. So ultimately that will come. And while Jeremiah's message is one of judgment, is one of decreation, actually woven in, as we've seen over the last few weeks, woven in is this language of shuv, return, come back. Like, I want to create again in you and to restore you. Do you see that? I figured... Um, if it's okay, uh, what we might do, I'm, I'm just gonna, I've got three examples, and I thought, let's have a look and see if we can spot any other intertextual links. Can we do that? So the first one is quite a straightforward one. It's not hidden like, like that one is. Uh, it's not like kind of woven in. It's, well, if you go back to, to Jeremiah chapter 3 and just read verse 1, some of your Bibles might even tell you where this comes from. So any, any thoughts? If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, she, uh, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived like a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Well, any ideas what that's linking to? No, both good guesses. So Adam and Eve, no. Um, Leviticus, no. Oh, no, but that's a great one as well. Could it be through Hosea? Hosea probably, probably links back to the same passage that this links back to as well. So just some of the, the themes around that. It's a Deuteronomy passage. Um, I think it is Deuteronomy... Let's try this one, 24. Let's double check. Uh, 
So Deuteronomy 24 says this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land. The Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So Jeremiah is referencing back to this law about marriage and divorce and what you can and cannot do around marriage and divorce. Whenever, whenever you see a text that links back to another text, there's a reason that the author is doing it. The author is doing it because they want you to read the text you're reading with the, within, in the forefront of your mind, the text they're quoting or they're linking back to. Because something about that gives you insight about what they're thinking with what they're writing. Are you with me? So when we read the Genesis language, Jeremiah includes the Genesis language because he wants you to think about the fact that the sin of the people of, of Judah is having a cosmic impact upon the world. Does that make sense? It's, it's not just about them. It's about the whole of creation and the fact that they're supposed to be priests to the whole of creation. And, and that's being undone. It's trying to get you to think bigger. Here, what's going on is that Jeremiah is getting you to think about the fact that God gave a law for his people around marriage and divorce. If a, if a man marries a woman and they divorce and then she marries another man and they divorce or he dies, she shouldn't go back and marry the first man again. That brings... Uh, uh, disrepute upon the man and upon the land, it says, doesn't it? But when you read the whole of this, what you realize is God's saying, I married you, you left me, you went and married all these other gods, and now you're coming back to me. And he is about to do, you know the song um, Reckless Love? And I don't know if you've heard, but people get really funny about saying that God's love is reckless. Um, but actually, you read this and you're like, his love is reckless. He does the very thing that he tells people not to do. Uh, because he knows the impact it will have upon them and upon their community. But he says, I, I will take you back. And you're like, that is shocking, because we're not supposed to take each other back after that's happened. But he is going to take his people back. Like, how, how huge is his grace for his people? Do you see that? So it's supposed to make you think something bigger. Um, let's do one more. Jeremiah chapter 1. You know the story of Jeremiah chapter 1. Have a quick scan down. And um, look at the call of Jeremiah. I'll read it out. When you think that it's reminded you of another story or another character, just give me a wave, okay? The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord, yeah, we've got a wave over there. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Why we could go on, I won't go on. But throughout chapter one, there is a link to. Yeah, I can't speak. Moses. Uh, Jeremiah, and that fact, Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy, he says that God's going to raise up a prophet like me. And Jeremiah, to the, we would think of Jesus as that prophet, right? But that doesn't mean that he was necessarily the only one. He was just the fulfillment of that. But Jeremiah was a prophet in the line of Moses. And, and, and 
Jeremiah or God through this is wanting you to realize that Jeremiah had a call like Moses to speak blessing and curses, which is what Moses did with the people, right? So you, right from the beginning, you get this almost this kind of shadow of Moses over Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is saying, oh, I don't know how to speak. And God's saying, no, but I'm going to send you and you're going to say this. And there's going to be, you're going to speak blessing and curses. You're going to, does that make sense? So I won't go through any more, but intertextuality, watch out for it. Um, it really, when you start to spot connections to other passages, go back and read the other story and just see, oh, does this story shape my reading of the story that I'm currently reading? Did the author want me to think something about this based upon that? Does that make sense? Great. All right, I'll stop talking. <laughs> Uh, question four, Jeremiah 22, verse 24 and 30. If one from Jehoiachin's line would ever be a ruler of Judah, if no, sorry, I missed out a word. That would help, wouldn't it? If no one from Jehoiachin's line, so a descendant of David, would ever be a ruler on, on, uh, of Judah or sit on David's throne, how could the promised Messiah later claim to be from David's line? Uh, cracking question from um, someone that must know the Bible really well. Um, and it's a very well constructed question. Um, so I'm going to go through the question again slowly. If no one from Jehoiachin's line, okay, a descendant of David, would ever be ruler of Judah or sit on David's throne, and that's an assumption. It's an assumption because the person who posed the question, and it's nothing against the person who posed the question, it's a very, very good question, is assuming that that bloodline will be coming right way through from David and come right way through Jehoiachin and then stopping at Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is the third son of uh, Josiah. So you get Josiah who was killed by uh, Pharaoh Necho, and then uh, Jehoahaz comes to the throne, and then Jehoahaz is taken off to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho, and then Jehoiakim comes to the throne, and after 11 years, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and this guy, Jehoiachin, comes to the throne. So these are three sons of Josiah. So let's have a look at the verse, uh, verse 24 of chapter 22. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, stop. Jehoiachin is not a son of Jehoiakim. Okay? This is just the way that the Bible is putting it. What, is, what the Bible is saying here is that he's a kin. So he's a kinsman of Jehoiakim. So Jehoiachin is a kinsman of Jehoiakim. Is not a son. That's just the way it puts it. Okay, that's confusing, I know, but that's just the way it puts it. Um, there is verses in the Bible that you can pick up, which I'm not going to go into, which describes the mother of Jehoiachin and the mother of Jehoiakim, and are two different ladies. Okay, so these guys are not. It's not a son. It's just uh, a kin, and it's just the way that, that the Bible is written. So carrying on. Were, were he a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. In those days, um, a king would give um, a, a top servant his signet ring. 
And on the signet ring, there would be the king's impression and the high official could make uh, a document or an edict in the king's name and he could press that seal into the letter and it would be done as though the king had made that edict. Okay. Uh, now, bear this in mind because later on we'll be coming to this. Incidentally, the, um, when we sign something today, that signature comes from this uh, signet ring. So it's a signet ring which they sealed. Today, we haven't got that. We go on and we, we, we make a signature. So that's, that's, where, that's where this came from. So, carrying on. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those who you fear. And I'm just going back one because um, where it says uh, in verse uh, 24, uh, you, if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would still pull you off. So the Lord has not given Jehoiachin a signet ring, as it were, his authority. He hasn't done this because Jehoiachin is such a nasty guy. He's such a guy into pagan worship that he hasn't given, the Lord hasn't given Jehoiachin his authority. Okay? So yeah, this is like the Lord hasn't given Jehoiachin his signet ring. Now, bear that in mind because later on we'll be coming back to uh, a signet ring in a different way. So it says in verse 25, I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country, where neither, you, neither of you were born, and there you will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Now bear that in mind, because we'll be following that through, okay? It's, there's a, it's, the question is a bit involved, okay? But if we bear with it, and we'll get this overall picture of, of, of what is happening. Now, going on to verse 30, which is part of our question. And in verse 30, it says, uh, this is what the Lord says, record this man that is Jehoiachin, as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Now, that's true. But what the word is talking about here is his immediate children, his offspring, right? We're not talking about the line going all the way down, uh, the bloodline from David going down. And in a way, the question could almost seem as though the bloodline stops with Jehoiachin, okay, from, Jeho from David to Jehoiachin, right? But, but we'll prove that, that that doesn't happen in a minute. So I believe that it's just the children of Jehoiachin that this verse is talking about. And we'll, again, we will, we will come to that. Uh, if you turn to uh, 2 Kings and chapter 25 and verses 27 to 30, just, just, waiting, for, just waiting on you now. Okay? Uh, in my Bible, it's headed Jehoiachin release. Now, what has happened here is that Jehoiachin has now been taken to Babylon and into exile. Uh, and this is what happens to him. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, so he's been exiled in Babylon for 37 years, okay? Uh, King of Judah, in the year of Awel Murdoch, Awel Murdoch or Evil Merodach is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has died, and now his son is on the throne. 
So this guy, Ewa Murdoch, became king of Babylon. He released Jehoiachin, this is our Jehoiachin, king of Judah from prison. He did this on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lives. So here's this guy who had been exiled 37 years ago. He's released from prison, probably house arrest. And he can live out his days in Babylon. And um, this, that, that would be the end of him. But obviously, uh, he has sons. But those sons will never sit on the throne of Judah. Now, if we have a look at uh, 2 Kings chapter uh, 24 and verses 16 and 17. Right. Uh, I'll go from verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, so he's, he's just going back again, he's going to Babylon. He also took from Jerusalem to Babylon the king's mother, his wives, his officials, and the prominent people of the land. The king of Babylon also deported to Babylon the entire force of 7,000 fighting men, strong and fit for war, and 1,000 skilled men, members, members and artisans. He made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah, okay? So you've got this bloodline coming through from David through to Jehoiachin. And now, suddenly, you've got Zedekiah, who is an uncle on the throne, okay? Now, how can an uncle be on the throne if he's not of the bloodline of David? And this is because people think that you have to have a bloodline of David coming right the way through because you've got that bloodline of David coming through to Jesus in the genealogies of Matthew and, and, and Luke. But the criteria for being a king is to be of the house of David. Okay, So Zedekiah is of the house of David. He is not. He is a, an uncle to Jehoiachin, and Jehoiachin is in the bloodline. So Jehoiachin's sons have stopped. They, I mean, they've gone to Babylon, so they can't be a king. But they couldn't have, they, they, they're not a king. They can't be a king. But is the uncle of Jehoiachin has now become king. Okay? He's of the house of David. Now, if you go to 2 Chronicles and chapter 36 and uh, verse 10. 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 10. In the spring, Nebuchadnezzar sent for him. This is Jehoiachin going back again, sent for him and brought him to Babylon, together with articles of value from the temple of the Lord. And he made Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the equivalent of the uh, verse in Kings. We're now going to Chronicles, which follows the line of the kings of Judah. And here again, it's saying that Zedekiah is an uncle of Jehoiachin. He is of the house of David. And, and Zedekiah is going to be the last king of Judah before Judah is destroyed. Uh, now, have a look at our genealogies and keep your finger in this. Matthew 1, chapter 1, and Luke chapter 3. Okay. In, in the genealogy, we'll have a look at um, Luke first of all. In that 
genealogy of Jesus coming right way through. If you have a look at verse 23 of chapter 3 of Luke, now Jesus himself was about 30 years of old age when he became when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought, so it was thought of Joseph. I mean the, the bit so it's a thought because uh, the Immaculate Conception. So but Jesus is of the line of Judah through uh, Joseph. Okay? So have a look now at Matthew chapter 1, and a genealogy there, and verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now suddenly, from the bloodline coming right the way through from David, right the way through here, suddenly Matthew puts Mary as the mother of Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't say like, and now Joseph is the earthly father of Jesus. It just goes to Mary. So what happens here is Mary is almost, uh, is not taking the place of Joseph, but is, um, um, is unusually put in a genealogy because none of the other genealogies in the Bible includes a lady. So all the, all the bloodlines coming down through Jacob and every, every, everybody else um, is through a man. And so it's not necessarily the criteria of being in the bloodline to actually be the king. Um, I, I can't, obviously no one could go into the conception of Jesus and how it happens and how it links to uh, Joseph. I mean, that's a mystery that nobody's going to come across. But Jesus is of, is of the line of Judah through Joseph. Now, if you go to verse 12, of Matthew chapter 1. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was a father of Shatil. Okay? Now this Jeconiah is actually Jehoachin. Jehoachin has got three names. That's not, not unusual in, in the times of the, the, the Old Testament and coming through here. So this guy, Jeconiah, is also Jehoiachin. It's just another name. He's got a third name, Canile. Okay? So here he is in the bloodline of David coming down through to Jesus. All right? So it hasn't stopped going back to our days in Babylon. It's, it, that hasn't stopped. It's cut, that line has come right the way down through. And then it says, after the, after, uh, the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, who is our... Uh, Jehoachin was a father of Shatil. Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is obviously the grandfather of Jeconiah or Jehoachin. Okay? All right? Now, go to Haggai, which is... No, it's okay. Just go back three books. All right? M Malachi, Malachi, uh, Zechariah, Haggai. Right. And Haggai chapter 2 and verse 20, the last portion of the book of Haggai. Uh, so it's just three, three books back. If you're at Matthew, go back three books into the Old Testament and you'll arrive at Haggai. Just three books back. Go, go, go to Matthew 
and just go back three books into the Old Testament. Okay, great. Uh, right, I'm going to read that portion now, okay? Zerubbabel, the Lord's signet ring. Now, do you remember we talked about a signet ring before? Bear, bearing that in mind. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and riders, and they will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, remember that, going back to our genealogy, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, if you like, in Matthew, this is his grandson. He has come back from exile in Babylon after the 70 years, and now he is governor. So there's no more kings because uh, there's going to be no more monarchy since they come back from exile in Babylon. The monarch is finished, but this guy is going to be the highest guy in the land. He's going to be the governor. So that line coming through from Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, is still alive. It's still coming through. But Jehoiachin's children would never become king of Judah. That, 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 that's finished. But now the God, God is gracious to this line by bringing up Zerubbabel to be governor. And Zerubbabel is going to be in charge of building the temple in Jerusalem. So this guy is at the top of the tree. And the Lord not only says to him, uh, you know, you are going to be governor, you are governor, but he says, I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. So now the Lord is saying, I'm giving you my authority. You, you obviously can't give a proper signet ring, but he's giving Zerubbabel his authority. Where he took any authority that Jehoiachin might have had away from him, because Jehoiachin was such a bad king, he's now saying to Zerubbabel, I am now going to give you my authority. You have got my authority to be governor. You have got my authority to carry out and to build the temple. And so this guy is now, God is now in his graciousness, as, as, as is followed all through the Bible, and as we've, we've seen sometimes you know, from, from the question tonight, he has come, turned around, he's brought the people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. No more pagan worship. No more kings. The line of the kings is gone until Jesus comes back as uh, king of kings and sits on the throne of David. But if they had had a monarchy when they came back from exile in Babylon, then Zerubbabel would have been king. He's in the line of Jehoiachin. He's in the line of Jehoiakim, if you like, uh, Jehoiachin, uh, uh, Jeconiah. So he could have been king if, when they come back from Babylon, they started up. Uh, the monarchy again. All right. So this guy, uh, Jehoiachin, it all didn't stop um, with him. It, his sons, it stopped with his sons. His sons couldn't become king. But I could see the problem with the question and, and how the questioner is, is thinking. Because you think of the bloodline coming from David right the way through to Jesus. And you're thinking, hang on, the bloodline stopped. It stopped. Everything stopped. But the bloodline still carries on. Because that's proved in 
the genealogy in Matthew. Um, so to be king, you have to be of the house of David. Okay. Now, I, I know there's a lot in, in all of that, but um, I hope you get where I'm, where I'm coming from. Uh, no need to blow it. Now. I just thought I'd let you know that, like Jehoiachin had a number of different names, that's still uh, a tradition that we carry on today. And I've got several names for this guy, but I don't, he doesn't know what they are. <laughs> Oh, Mataniah. Great. Okay. Um, hey, really quickly before I move on, Den mentions in 2 Chronicles 36 that, um, so you've got uh, Jehoiachin, was 18 years old, he reigned for three months, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says, verse 10, in the spring, King Nebuchadnezzar sent for him. And does that ring any bells? In the spring, it's a phrase that's used in the scripture in another story. Yes, in the spring when kings go out to war, and who is that in reference to? David. And what did David do in the spring when kings were supposed to go out to war? He didn't go out to war. He was doing naughty things. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, he sent Uriah out to war, but he was busy, yeah, with other, other things, conquering other things, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. But... um. I wonder if there's a bit of an intertextual link there, because that's... Yeah, 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 true, there's that. But you get this phrase, there's something going on here where, where this king, uh, Jehoiachin, has done evil, and we get this phrase, in the spring. And this is right at the end of the, of the house of David ruling before it's about to be conquered. I wonder if there's a bit of a link there about... Yeah, anyway. Chris... Question five, Jeremiah 31, 29 to 31, 31 verses 29 to 31. Does this mean that God did punish children for the sins of parents at one time? Great, great question. Um, so, so this is Jeremiah 31 uh, verses 29 to 31. So I'll just read that now. Uh, so this is the Lord saying, the people will no longer quote this proverb. The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. I love the, the word pucker. All people will die for their own sins. Those who eat the sour grapes will be the ones whose mouths will pucker. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. So... Um, you know, re reading this, the assumption is that whereas one time, pe uh, you know, parents, if parents did a certain thing, then it's suggesting that the child would be responsible for taking on the consequence. Um, so in other words, you know, if a parent eats sour grapes, then it would be the child who feels the sort of sour taste and, and horrible thing. Um, and I think, the I think the answer is somewhat complex. Um, but I'm going to try and keep it simple. So I think the answer, the direct answer to the question, did this mean that God punished ch uh, children for their parents' sin at one time? I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what it's saying. 
Um, and we're just going to jump around a few places. But um, what, what, I first, what I think first became apparent to me, just having a look around Scripture, is that um, I, d- I don't think I don't think this whole thing around sort of um, children and generations being um, sort of taking on the sin of their forefathers or their parents being a linear thing. I don't think it was like it didn't happen and then there was a period when it did happen and then it stopped. Um, and, and I think that's partly because there are, throughout Scripture, there are lots of different references where you could say that the opposite is true. And that even almost happens in one breath just in the next chapter of Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 17, it says, O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your strong hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequence of one generation's sin upon the next. So on one hand, there's that sense of God's loving many. I know it doesn't say loves generations and generations, but there's that sense that there's this God's unfailing love. But also, on the other hand, the consequence of people's sin is felt beyond the people who commit it. And I think Matt almost there was alluding to that um, in the sense that whether you, whether there's whether there was like a narrative, uh, a little sort of joining narrative there, but the kings of Israel, what David did in his own weakness did have an impact upon the people of Israel for generations to come and we'll we'll come on to that in a minute um but on the on then on the other hand there's 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 language in scripture so i'm going to go to psalm 103 don't worry about keeping up because i'm just saying one one verse but the love of the lord remains forever with those who fear him his, his salvation extends to the children's children so there's this reality whereby on one hand yes there is there is mention time and time again of the sin of the people passing down and being felt by those, you know, who come next, but also that the work of salvation happens beyond and continues throughout generations. Those those two are actually one and the same thing, you could argue, but we're not going to go into that. Um, I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy again. Um, so I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 5. Verses 9 to 10. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. So this is the ten, 10 Commandments. You must now bow down. You must not. Again, that's quite critical. Uh, you must not bow down to them or worship them. <laughs> for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in their third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So just hold, hold on to that. Um, and then skip forward to chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 16, which says, Parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. And I think for me, when you put those two things together, they look like they're contradicting each other. But actually, I 
think that on, on one hand, what the covenant, what God's laying down in his covenant via the Ten Commandments is, there's this, again, there's this sense that it's not that you have a direct punishment. You know, a child doesn't, you know, it's not like God stores up this punishment that is is meant for the, the parent and then waits for them to turn a certain age and suddenly it's like all this stuff comes upon them. There's There's a sense of corporate, sin and guilt that passes down and 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 so on one hand if a parent commits a sin and by the law it's punishable by death it shouldn't be the child that that is that that takes a judgment but on the other hand there's something there's a bigger thing happening isn't there in terms of the judgment of god being passed down from generation to generation and again you get that i think most clearly in deuteronomy in chapter 28 when God lays down the blessings and the curse which is what I referenced earlier you know there's there's so much blessing when we follow the way of the Lord and that passes down that's not just for us you know that passes down to our children it passes down to our children's children but the same is true when we disobey God when we and and there's it's so obvious why you know we don't experience the blessings but we also experience strife and violence and and pain and those things impact our children. Now it's not to, it's not to say that God doesn't also pass judgment in a very direct way that then impacts the ch- children's children as well. But there's I think there's something that just gets passed down, sort of, and it's harder to to pin down than just X equals Y. But Y is stored up for the next generation, if that makes sense. So I'm just going to cut a couple more things. Um, what I'm trying to say is that, yes, there's always been a sense that the sin of people has passed down and, and has impacted children's children. But there's also, and it's corporate, but and, and it's for that reason that the kings of Israel were so critical. And so I'm, I'm just going to go to two kings again, uh, chapter 21. And this is King Manasseh, Manasseh, Manasseh. Either way, my man, Manny, call him Manny. Let's call him Manny for short. Um, so, so we'll just start at the top of the chapter, chapter 21. Manny was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother was Hephzibah. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed altars of Baal and set up an Asherah pole, just as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshipped them. Um, He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord, the place where the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. He built these altars for all the powers of the heavens in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination, etc., etc. Um, and just skipping on to verse 8. Um, oh no, in fact, I'll, I'll, verse 7. Manasseh even made a carved image of Asherah and set it up in the temple, the very place where the Lord had told David and his son Solomon, my name will be honored forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, the city I've chosen from among all the tribes of Israel. If the Israelites will be careful to obey my commands, 
all the laws my servant Moses gave them. I will not send them into exile from this land that I gave their ancestors. But the people refused to listen. And Manasseh led them to do even more evil than the pagan nations that the Lord had destroyed when the people of Israel entered the land. And then basically, you know, goes on to sort of pin pin the blame on um, Manasseh. And so, again, it comes back to this point, doesn't it? When we when we compared what it's saying in Deuteronomy about the sins visiting the, the next generation, the next generation, the kings had responsibility to safeguard the people of Israel, and he chose not to, and therefore his sin, ultimately, his misuse of power impacted Gen- well, you know, beyond the third and fourth generation, it, it changed the history of 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 the of the nation. But interestingly enough, between Manasseh and and the exile starting was four generations. Probably not a coincidence. But anyway, I'm just going to finish with with exile um, with, uh, with Ezekiel, because um, the same phrase that we started off with about sour grapes is used in chapter 18. Um, it says it says this at the, uh, from verse 1. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. And then it goes on to say, basically, you know, suppose a righteous man does what is right and then his son comes along and does the opposite. Who is responsible? It's the unrighteous son and vice versa. And I think what's interesting there is it's basically, you know, it's what Matt was saying. Here's here's another example of the same phrase being used in a different part of the Bible to sort of explain the same thing, which is at this point, God is saying, that the person who sins is the one who's responsible. And I think what's interesting is is Ezekiel almost takes it a step further than Jeremiah does. And and I wonder whether that's because now we're in exile, as as Dem was saying, there's no there's no king, there's no leadership in in the exilic community where Ezekiel is. And and I don't know whether that is almost like a birth of a sense of more personal responsibility. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just speculating here. Where there's a sense that we have, we, you know, we have no king and no leadership to guide us in the same same way that Manasseh sh- uh, should have. Now, God is telling us we have we have to be responsible for our own behaviour. I don't, don't know whether that's true, but I think more importantly, and and this is just to round it off, going back to the Jer- Jeremiah, the the chapter that the question came from. This whole chapter is. God pointing towards hope for restoration. So there's actually something bigger at play even than just this this particular time when, you know, we all need to start being more personally responsible. There's this looking forward to a time when when through Jesus our sins won't be passed down to the next generation. They won't even be stored in our lives. And I think that's what it's ultimately pointing to. And I think so. I think to answer the question, in a way, yes, there there is a time when God did that. The sin did did impact generation upon generation, um, but through Jesus, that doesn't have to happen anymore. But it's also important to remember that our sin can still do that. 
You know, it's not to say, oh, you know, and it goes back to Romans, doesn't it, where Paul says, oh, should we just carry on and let sin abound? By no means. You know, what we do still impacts our children, the children around us in church and in society. And so I think it's important to remember that, but also remember that, that this is pointing towards a time which is, has now come to fruition where, you know, we don't have to carry on living in the guilt of our own sin, let alone the sins of our parents or our grandparents or our community. That's good stuff. Thanks, mate. Been some challenging questions tonight. You guys have done great. Um, I just, when, when Chris mentioned Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of the children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Intertextuality, anyone? Yeah, it does, but actually Deuteronomy is borrowing it from somewhere else before then. It's actually from the most quoted Old Testament verse or passage by the Old Testament. So this particular verse is a little bit like the Old Testament's version of John 3.16, you know, the verse that we all know really, really well. Um, and it's Exodus 34. Um, verses five, mm, no, verse six and seven. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, this is God proclaiming his own name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So it's linking back to that. Um, you might think, well, why is Jeremiah quoting that? But the story back then was they had just worshipped the golden calf and the, the tablets had been broken and Moses goes back up the mountain and God says, hey, I'm a compassionate and gracious God. Um, and he gives the law again. And, and so there's, you've messed up but there's grace here. I'm going to deal with this sin and I'm going to change this nation and I'm going to work through you. And like Chris was saying, there's this 31 and 32, there's this, this push towards hope and restoration. Even though you've messed up, I'm still this compassionate and gracious God and I will deal with sin and I will restore. Do you, do you see that there? Like So, yeah, it's cool, hey? Love it. Anyway, great. Last question is Jeremiah 36. Uh, so if you want to turn there, verse 30, let's just read verse 30. It says, where is it? There it is. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. And the question says, was this a failed prophecy as Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, succeeded him? It was. 36, verse 30. 36, verse 30. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, we're back in Jeremiah, guys, okay? So Jeremiah gives this prophetic word, and this prophetic word is to Jehoiakim, and it's that he will have no one to succeed him to sit on the throne, okay? Um, But that isn't what happens, because his son Jehoiachin sits on the throne for three months, right? So... You're shaking your head, but I've got this from numerous commentaries as well. So I'm going to answer the question first, and you can rebut afterwards. Is that all right? Lovely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So <clears throat> according to numerous commentaries, <laughs> okay, Jehoiachin, he, uh, Jehoiakim is not going to have anyone to sit on the throne, but Jehoiachin did succeed him. So um, the story is that Jehoiakim has cut and burned the scroll that Jeremiah has written, yeah? So Jeremiah has written this scroll, this prophetic word, and Jehoiakim cuts it up and burns it, throws it into the fire. And because of that, this word comes, and and Jeremiah writes another scroll. But this time on it, he adds this bit saying that he won't have anyone to sit on the throne. Um, But his son Jehoiachin took over for three months after him, okay? And then after being on the throne for three months, he gets carried off into Babylon. And then his uncle Zedekiah gets put up on the, put on the throne in Jerusalem. So here's the thing. The question is, was Jeremiah's prophecy wrong because there was one to succeed him on the throne after him? And Jehoiah Chin, gosh, Kim Chin, uh, Jehoiah Chin, in a minute I'm going to say, I'm going to say Kim Yong Jung or something. Yeah. Anyway, Jehoiah Chin sits on the throne. Um, his, uh, the various things that I read, this is the thing that I kind of thought, ah, oh, this, I love this most. Uh, the truth is that it wasn't a failed prophecy. It was correct because in your, in your Bible, you'll see, it says that he won't have anyone to sit, to sit on the throne. Okay. The word to sit in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word yoshab. Okay. A yoshab. Um, and the word yoshab in the Hebrew, when used of kings, it, it has a sense of permanence to it. So it actually, it says it means to sit. It means to dwell. But more than to dwell, it means to remain or be established. Now, Jehoiachin was on the throne for three months before he was carried off into exile. So when, when Jeremiah says that, hey, Jehoiakim um, won't have anyone to yoshab the throne after him, then the prophecy is correct. Because the prophecy says there won't be anyone after you. Uh, your, your son won't sit on the throne after you, won't, nor will not be established on the throne. Does that make sense? So he won't be established on the throne. And he isn't. He's there for three months before he's carried off to Babylon. Then, you want to disagree? Great. Go for it. Um, it's only, you know, you get commentators and commentators and... Every commentator seems to come up with something a bit different, right? Um, just go to, just go, just go to two kings in chapter twenty-four. Two kings twenty-four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've already, I've already said that that when it says that Jehoiachin is son of Jehoiakim, it's a, it's it's how the Bible puts it, it's a it's a king. It means that they're kindred, right? So. Have a look. Have a look at. Um, have a look at uh, 
2 Kings and chap, uh, 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. His mother's name was Zabida, daughter of Padiah. She was from Ramah. So that's his mother, okay? Now, have a look over the, uh, have a look at um, Jehoiachin, which is um, chapter 24 and verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Natasha, daughter of Alatha, if that's how they pronounce it. She was from Jerusalem. So these two guys have got two different mothers. You've got two different mothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have. My dad doesn't have the same mother that I have. Their mothers would be different if one was the son of the other. So, two women have got two different sons, right? Yeah. So, are they sons? They're, they're, they're two different women. So are those two children born of those two women going to be sons? No, but one could be the son of the other. One could be the father. And then the other, his mother, is that one's wife. Work out the ages. Right? So what you've got is Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. Right? Which is makes him... Right. So Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. So take that away from 14, is it? Something like that. So, it's possible, but it's not possible. <laughs> I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't walk with this one. I'm, I'm going to... I love him, but I'm going to flat out disagree. And because most of the time when you read the son of, the son of, it does mean the son of. And I don't think the mother's name's been different. But anyway, we can, we can disagree and go back and forth on it. Either way, my answer to Jeremiah 36.30 stands, the prophecy wasn't false because he was only on the throne for three months. And the word to sit means to be established or to remain. And the person that was on the throne for three months was not established and did not remain until his death. Does that make sense? So the prophecy is not a false prophecy. Whether he was his son or not, the next person that took the throne was not established on the throne. And so the prophecy was not a false prophecy. Jeremiah's word was correct. I'm going to wrap. We're going to stop. We're going to stop there. We're going to stop there. We can discuss afterwards. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. <laughs> uh, probably given you more questions but that's that's always good um chris do you want to pray for us and we'll wrap up <laughs> mm. <laughs> father it's great to be together and it's great to have your words and to have the tools to be able to really dig into it and you know i mean we've We've not even scratched the surface today, um, but it's great to have been scratching the surface and digging in over the months and years that we've been together doing this Bible in two years in the, in the cycles that we have. And 
you know, I, I can only speak for myself, but I can definitely say with full assurance that I'm more confident in your word and more confident in you and more confident in your plan for the world, your plan for creation, and your plan for me uh, and this family, this community because of it and so grateful. And so we we leave the disagreements to one side and we say that we agree that you are um, Father God, the compassionate and gracious God. Um, and we say that your son is the Lord of all and the Saviour and the Christ. And uh, we say your Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and comforts us and gives us strength. Um, and that's the spirit that goes with us as we leave the building. And we pray that the spirit stays with us and, and uses us and works in us this coming week. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.